0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to The Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Good to be with you. We've been watching for this with the world's attention on Ukraine. This would be a perfect time for Russia's close friend China to make a move on Taiwan. Fears of just such a move taking place grew this week with some threatening
1: activity from China. For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah. Yes, it was over the last weekend that China deployed its military forces basically all around the island of Taiwan and conducted several days of large-scale military drills. And analysts are calling this a rehearsal by China to invade Taiwan. So this involved... Chinese military's uh, maritime forces, its aerial forces, also its conventional and missile forces. China's Liaoning aircraft carrier was deployed just to the east of Taiwan, playing its part in these war games. And then there were uh, a large number of Chinese planes and warships that were deployed to the island's west. So just a A great deal of Taiwan was surrounded, and these drills lasted for about three days. So Taiwan, we know that it it governs itself as an independent nation. That's been the situation there for more than 70 years now. But China considers the island a part of Chinese territory. And Xi Jinping and other Chinese officials, they've repeatedly said that one of their most urgent priorities is to bring the island under China's rule. And they've made clear you know, over and over again over the years that they are perfectly willing to use military force to do that, if that's what it takes. So when when you keep all of that in mind, all of those threats to use force that China has made over the years, then I think it's easy to see why military drills like this really are a rehearsal to invade Taiwan. And it's easy to see why this would be worrying just intensely worrying for the Taiwanese people
0: yeah especially given uh just how weak the uh, the West has shown in trying to push back on uh, on russia 's moves and and the fact that Russia and China are so closely uh linked with one another it, there are a lot of people who have expressed concerns that this would be the time that China would be able to take advantage of of the, the, the distraction, in a sense, that's going on over in Ukraine and make a move in a way that uh, the world really wouldn't be able to respond to.
1: Yeah, I think that's a big part of, of the whole current global dynamic that just makes it so worrying. Because of course, at the same time, as you see all these, these drills around Taiwan, uh, Russia is waging this illegal war of aggression on Ukraine, taking up a great deal of the West's attention and resources. And of course, these two nations are partners in crime, Russia and China, they have each other's backs, and they would love nothing more than to see the US defeated and just kind of exposed as a broken power. So I think that um, if, if the Chinese play their cards right, then you could see this kind of uh, synchronized with what's happening in Ukraine, and that would just put the West in disarray. Help us to understand how serious these drills are that we're seeing this week
0: uh, compared to other drills that China has undertaken. This isn't the first
1: time that they've threatened Taiwan, but this does represent
0: an escalation.
1: Yes, I think uh, what we're seeing happen right now, both to the east and the west, with a great deal of Taiwan surrounded, it's not necessarily new locations that the Chinese military is drilling in, but the fact that it's happening all at once in you know, he- heavily uh, heavily manned areas there to the west of the island, and then also to the east, with it even wrapping around to the north a bit. So I think it's mostly just the scale, just how many locations are are sort of being used all at once, that makes this unprecedented. Our editor in chief
0: has talked for quite some time. I'm thinking back even into the '90s about the United States relationship with Taiwan and the fact that Taiwan really has relied on the United States as, uh, as a hedge against Chinese aggression. Uh, and a weak America really does open the door for China to be able to to make a move here. Can you just explain, say, uh, a bit more about that history and then how he linked that with Bible prophecy?
1: Sure. Yeah. And you're right. He's He's been commenting on the Taiwan-China dynamic for more than 20 years now, and he rightly puts the United States really at the center of it, since America is the only thing that has deterred China from just using overwhelming force to take Taiwan. Uh, Back in 1998 is when he first discussed this, and he wrote about US President Bill Clinton making some statements, basically just saying that he publicly opposed Taiwanese independence. Mr. Fleury at that time said that that showed that it was only a matter of time before the Chinese would conquer Taiwan. And he said that that was sure to happen because of what he called a, quote, pitifully weak-willed America. And, and of course, he put all of that in the context of Bible prophecy. He explained that his entire understanding of that dynamic Was based on Bible prophecy and especially a verse in Leviticus 26 that says America would become very mired in sin and would lose its will to use its power. And we, we have a free booklet. It's called Russia and China in Prophecy. And there's a whole section in there about Taiwan. It's, it's all built on what Mr. Flurry's comments over the years have been about that. So I would uh, encourage anyone who doesn't have a copy of Russia and China in Prophecy to pick one up and just to learn the big picture context and the significance of this situation there. Very good. We
0: thank you very much for bringing that to us, Jeremiah. A development in Europe this week could prove historic. It flows out of Russia's activity in Ukraine, and it points to a prophecy our editor-in-chief has been highlighting for
2: years. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, Finland announced that it intends to seek NATO membership. This is something that they have refrained from seeking for decades as they've tried to, uh, or almost been forced to kind of maintain this neutrality between NATO and Russia. Uh, Now they are, um, you know, quite clearly choosing a side. The uh, NATO, or the the Finnish uh, president and the prime minister, they both released a joint statement on May 12th where they said Finland must apply for NATO membership without delay. We hope that the national steps still needed to make this decision will be taken rapidly within the next few days. Sweden is also moving towards NATO membership. I believe they're holding a vote on that soon. And uh, the prime minister uh, supports it. They are very clearly moving in that direction. And uh, this then is kind of a dangerous time for both those countries. The fear is that once they're in NATO, then they're protected by NATO Article 5. They're protected by this mutual defense clause that uh, an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all. And so there's a very public declaration saying, hey, Russia, if you do anything against any NATO member, you are declaring war on the United States of America. Uh, So having announced their intention to join NATO, but not being a member of NATO yet, they're now kind of in this danger zone where the fear is that Russia might choose to act uh, before that NATO nuclear umbrella is extended over those two countries. And this is where British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has kind of stepped in this week, and he's been traveling over uh, into the region. Britain signed a security agreement with Sweden, uh, and basically Britain is... To to kind of step into the breach is extending its nuclear umbrella over those two countries uh, until that that gap is over and then they're uh, they're fully paid up NATO members.
0: We sent out a trumpet brief last night from uh, trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic, uh, where he. He went back through uh, the history of these countries, Finland and Sweden, and uh, all of the acts of aggression that uh, that Russia has undertaken and the threats that they have faced where they have not actually publicly announced an intention to join NATO. Uh, and the point that he makes is it's quite extraordinary. This gives you a sense of just how serious the uh, conditions are now that you have these politicians who are making this, this pronouncement.
2: That's right. I mean, he goes through some of the big kind of crises, 1956, 1968, Soviet invasions of Hungary, Czechoslovakia, uh, more recently, 2008, Putin's invasion of, uh, of Georgia. Uh, and they didn't make these moves. So it does give you a sense of the gravity of some of the, of, of what is happening. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting situation for them. I think the reason why they're doing this is Russia looks both aggressive and weak. Uh, Previously, in some of those times, uh, they feared Russia, but they feared Russia too much to try and join NATO. Right now, I think they fear Russia, uh, but they're not so afraid of Russia anymore that they're uh, that they're reluctant to move. It's kind of, I guess, a fear of not of Russia today, but of Russia tomorrow or Russia in a, in a few, once they've kind of digested Ukraine kind of thing. So. Uh, it 's uh, it's a time period where they're, they feel like they 're able to move, whereas I think they felt paralyzed certainly during the Cold War when they were facing off against the soviet union
0: yeah that 's an, that's an important distinction to make now the, uh, the The fact that you have these these countries in Europe and Eastern Europe uh, kind of fleeing from Russia the way that they are this is really something that our editor in chief has pointed to specifically as Russia has undertaken this adventurism uh watch Europe's reaction and this is this is what's happening right here in fulfillment of what he told us to watch for
2: that's right I mean we've been working on the upcoming trumpet prints and and just the last few trumpet prints looking I've been looking back at what we've been writing what mr mr Gerald flurry has been writing over the past 20 30 years about this and I kind of feel like As time goes on, the more I look, the more places I see where he has said, uh, you know, watch how Europe responds. Fear of Russia is going to cause Europe to respond, even Mr. Armstrong before him. uh, There's just so many places that both of these individuals talked about, watch the fear of Europe that they have of of Russia. This is going to be a major catalyst for them uniting. And uh, this... uh, it's it it there's just it's, it's it comes directly from Bible prophecy, and this is what you see with these two countries. They're afraid of Russia. They decide they're needy. They need NATO protection for their long term future. Uh, they're moving over in that direction. I think another interesting thing I just read in Euro uh, Euro Intelligence news report this morning was talking about how, well, okay, whatever a, a future American administration decides to pull out of NATO, well mm-hmm. now Sweden and Finland their neutrality is over. They've ended that. And then they could lose their NATO protection, and they might be forced to to depend much more strongly on the European Union than these two countries have Mm -hmm. in the past, and kind of go from being on the fringes of Europe to countries that really, really need a a strong Europe. So uh, that's, I think, another interesting angle. But they now that they've been forced to choose a side. But this prophecy, this forecast, you know, Mister got a quote here from 2014 where um, he wrote, the fear you see in Europe uh, is going to cause 10 leaders in Europe to unite in a sudden and dramatic way. He said, the reaction within Europe to this crisis is something that you need to watch because it is, because it is shaping and molding the future composition of the Holy Roman Empire. And he's made comments like that dozens of times. Uh, and you look at what the Bible prophesies in these scriptures that we mentioned so often on this show uh, that talk about Europe, they talk about Europe having this major clash with russia and with china and that what we're seeing today is not that clash but the bible prophecies certainly describe this climate of fear and nervousness between europe and these kings of the east where they're uh, constantly looking over their shoulder worried about what these other parties are doing and so mr flurry mr armstrong they were making these forecasts based on those bible prophecies and sure enough now we're seeing all of this play out exactly the way that they were writing for decades
0: yeah, the uh, the the point that uh, that you made about just what does it mean to kind of sign yourself up for NATO at this point with the United States being as weak as it is is an interesting one. And Mihailo brings that out in uh, in his article. Um, it's worth noting that 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 uh, because America really is, uh, it's already shown itself to be uh, an unstable partner, the way that it handled the situation in Afghanistan and just the, the foreign policy that the Biden administration is enacting, to sign up to NATO really is, in effect, signing up to greater reliance on its European partners, not so much uh, like like this historical idea of America being this superpower that really is the greatest, most powerful guarantor of NATO's uh, Muscularity—that's just not the case anymore.
2: I think this is the story for all of Eastern Europe and Scandinavia now, where I think all of these countries, given the choice, they would much rather rely on the United States than they would rely on Germany. Mm. You know, Poland does not have a long history of being invaded by the United States; they feel much more secure uh, with them as an ally. The problem is that. Uh, More and more, they're they're seeing they can't rely on the United States. And okay, well, if it's a choice between being defenseless against Russia or putting our trust in Germany, well, that's when they're putting their trust in Germany. And so now you can certainly see Finland and Sweden drawn into exactly the same dynamic that we see with Poland and some of these other countries becoming more reliant on Germany.
0: We have this, this article, uh, Finland and Sweden Want to Join NATO, uh, up at thetrumpet.com. We will certainly link to that. Anything in particular, say, of all of the uh, material that you were discussing about Gerald Fleury, uh, something that really uh, distills what he has said about this best for our listeners?
2: Well, I think the latest Trumpet print edition, uh, and in particular Germany is Transforming Before Your Eyes, his article there, uh, does go through and pull together some of the quotes uh, from all of these different uh, places that he's talked about before and and describes exactly why Bible prophecy tells us to watch this this fear of what's going on in Russia.
0: Very good. Thank you very much for that, Richard. We'll link to, uh, to those articles in the show notes for today's program. Violence in Israel continues. And this week, a very popular Palestinian journalist was killed in a firefight. Arabs are turning this into a an anti-Israel PR story. To learn about this, we'll turn to Brent Noctegal.
3: Yeah, this is a story that uh, continues to gain momentum. This happened on Wednesday when uh, a really famous Al Jazeera commentator, Shirin Abu Akleh, uh, she was killed. In some fashion but in a firefight in the West Bank in the the town of the city of Janine there was a firefight between Palestinians and Israelis Um, and in the course of that she was killed we don't know to this day uh, just yet whose bullet killed her whether it was a Palestinian one or whether it was an Israeli one however it's amazing how fast a information war can spread out of the middle east and i think israel did a pretty good job in this case initially at least putting up their narrative that they're going to have an investigation we're calling on the palestinian authority to have a joint investigation to find out who killed her Um, however of course the, the palestinian narrative was immediate and direct blaming uh israel for murdering um a very popular a very popular um journalist this is what's um Uh, David Horowitz, the editor of the Times of Israel, wrote about it on Wednesday. He said, Shireen Abu Akleh was a veteran reporter trusted by and familiar to tens of millions of Al Jazeera viewers across this region and beyond. She was killed in the course of her journalistic work while clearly identified as a member of the press. A Jerusalem-born Christian, she also held American citizenship, making the question of responsibility for her death a matter of direct significance for Israel's most important ally. And so this is a isn't just a death of a, of a necessarily just another Palestinian. Um, this is somebody not to make light of death of anybody, but this is a very high-profile individual who um, is well-known and beloved to many. And she's not a Muslim Arab; she's a Christian Arab. Uh, currently, is recording right now. There's a, a funeral for her, and her her um, coffin is going around Jerusalem. There was just thousands of people turning up in West Jerusalem and the Jaffa Gate for carrying her casket. And this is uh, it's. It's kind of bizarre to see some of these scenes in Western Jerusalem where you have, uh, in this aftermath now of her death, thousands of Palestinians chanting pro-Arab, uh, anti-Israel slogans in West Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem and you're from the West. You've gone through the Jaffa Gate to enter the Old City. This is loaded with Palestinian flags and Palestinian chants, nationalistic chants against the state of Israel, right now. And Israel's police are trying to get a hold of it, um, but we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. So this is, I think, just another big indication of of the danger Israel faces when there is a mistake. Um, whether Israel killed her or not, Israel would, ha- would apologize. They've already expressed sadness for the death. This is a journalist doing her work. However, this is used as fuel on the fire by Palestinian leadership, be it Hamas or the Palestinian Authority, to make the Palestinian street go mad. And, and it, it looks like it's just, just coming at the worst possible time as tensions were already extremely high.
0: Yeah, what a picture of of just the the danger of the mob generally, but it does seem like uh, the Palestinian street is particularly uh, susceptible to this kind of uh, emotional, violent response to at genuine misinformation, which which uh, it, it seems like the, the Palestinians really have done a, a remarkably consistent job of taking advantage of any scrap of anything that makes Israel look bad or to paint them as the aggressor or as uh, oppressors, as violently uh, overthrowing uh, Palestinians. Uh, this kind of narrative has, has Unfolded so many times, and uh, as you said, Israel has uh, really had mixed success at trying to uh, to push back against that because of the, uh, the emotional nature of the people that, uh, that get swept up into these things.
3: Yeah, and I think the the Palestinian narrative in the Western reporting is is taken at face value as well. Um, it's not just Al Jazeera that, that is you know going to trumpet that Israel's is to blame um, for this. Uh, a Qatari outlet this is going to be in the BBC. This is going to be in, and it already is. Washington Post people reporters already blaming Israel for this. Um, you've got members of the American Congress already blaming Israel for this. Uh, the, the members of the Squad, of course, um, upset about this, and so that is the narrative that's accepted and pushed out. I think Israel has done a somewhat of a good job. I said, as I said, at trying to counter it straight off the bat, but we really need to get back to why this lady was was unfortunately killed she was doing her job um but israeli commanders were in janine because this has been a hotbed of terrorism that has murdered uh five israelis in the past three weeks they've come from janine and they've come across and we talked about the the axe attack that took place last week on last week's program with three men, fathers of sixteen children were killed, Israelis, and then two weeks or two weeks before that you had the night the, the bar that was attacked by a Palestinian gunman. He too was from Janine. And just this morning, or just this afternoon, actually, uh, a couple of minutes before we record this, there was America. there's an Israeli commando uh, of twenty-two years in the service, killed in another firefight in this same place. Where Where this woman was killed. And so the reality of it is, this is a very dangerous place. This has been where terrorists have crossed into Israel uh, to kill Israeli citizens over the past few weeks. Israel is there to try and stop more of that. And in this battle where this lady was killed, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of bullets flying around. Um, and so this is a, a upsetting. It's a casualty of, of war in in many ways. However, I think it just speaks to the amazing um, degree to which tension, a death of an individual, um, can real tension in Jerusalem has the means to mobilize a lot of people and get quickly angry, and and that's what why we watch Jerusalem. If I could, I just want to give you a quote from The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem. This is the book that Mr. Flurry released, I think, a couple of years ago. In his prelude uh, to the to the chapters in the introduction, he says this, To this day, the city is at the heart of the world's thorniest political and diplomatic dilemma, uh, thorniest political and diplomatic dilemma. It's a hotspot for devastating news caused by religious and political resentments, terrorist attacks, and other violence. It is a powder keg charged with nuclear potential. No other city is fraught with international tension. And that's what we're seeing here. Um, Both, well, the second intifada, um, well, the first intifada, I should say, what was the main meme of that? This was involving those images, the fake images of a child, um, and an Israeli soldier um, that was propagated everywhere and it was used to mobilize the world against Israel. So scenes like this are really capitalized from the Palestinians and the Iranians jump on board. Anyone that's anti-Israel is going to jump on board and and we're just seeing getting a foretaste to how the media storm is going to be created, I think, to to see how tensions will be increased in Jerusalem, leading to, as the Bible says, you know, these events directly coming uh, before Jesus Christ's return.
0: The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem, the booklet from Gerald Flurry, we will link to that in the show notes. And thank you very much for that, Brent. The leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade has sparked tremendous backlash among a segment of the radical left, and it's turning violent. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller.
4: Yeah, the protests continue. They started, I mean, within minutes of uh, the draft being leaked. Uh, with a protest on the steps of the Supreme Court, which uh, got pretty vocal, but not necessarily violent. But the, the protests, they've escalated uh, over the week with protesters actually showing up at the homes of uh, Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Alito. Justice Alito and his family have actually been moved to an undisclosed location for their safety uh, the protests have spread from the houses to churches. There have been churches across uh, America uh, marred with uh, graffiti, with pro-abortion slogans, uh, and then probably hit their their most violent to date at a pro-life clinic in Wisconsin that actually was firebombed, had two Molotov cocktails thrown at it by uh, Antifa activists who, uh, who then proceeded to... Uh, Uh, Spray paint the building with the phrase, if abortions aren't safe, neither are you. Uh, And so definitely some concern here about how violent this is going to get. The president of that pro-life organization in Wisconsin has actually blamed Speaker Nancy Pelosi for much of this violence. Mm -hmm. She had a statement on her website that said, while we have seen and heard extraordinary anguish in our communities, we have been moved by how much, How many have channeled their righteous anger into meaningful action, planning to march and mobilize and make their voices heard. Uh, so that's Speaker Pelosi comparing these protests to righteous action. Uh, and that statement was actually posted to her website after the pro-life organization in Wisconsin was firebombed, wow. um, which is why the, the president of the organization is really saying that, that rhetoric like that uh, probably contributed to... The attack on that organization and which also uh, really, uh, really kind of interesting in that um, with Pelosi's comments and the fact that the Justice Department, Attorney General Merrill Garland, have done nothing against these protesters is the fact that it is actually a federal crime mm-hmm. to pick it with the intent of influencing a justice Picketing in front of Congress is one thing, as long as it's peaceful, because Congress is meant to be the representatives of the people. Picketing Mm -hmm. is supposed to be a technique to let the representatives know what you want. Uh, The Supreme Court is not supposed to be beholden to the people in any way. Mm -hmm. It's purely a legal question of, is constitutionally, is abortion a federal issue or a state issue? Uh, and so picketing to influence someone who is supposed to be uninfluencable uh is punished by up to a year in prison if the uh if the attorney general wasn't so busy targeting uh parents who speak out at school board meetings against critical race theory to uh to worry about this yeah
0: really a powerful sign of uh the trend that Gerald Flurry has been talking about for quite some time—the lawlessness and the the uh, the way that the left in America endorses and encourages this kind of lawlessness—in this case, they are just out there. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi is one of many Democrats who are out there publicly endorsing uh, exactly this kind of behavior. I don't think there's there's been any of them that that have uh, specifically endorse the violence, but they've, they they say that even when you draw attention to the fact that it's illegal for these people to to protest in the way that they are, they say, "Well, these are extraordinary times, and they call for extraordinary measures."
4: Yeah, absolutely. That's actually one of the articles we should uh, probably put in the show notes. Uh, it's a couple years old, as uh, by our editor in chief titled the, "The Kavanaugh Hearings Reveal America's Lawless Spirit." And that's going back to when Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, was being confirmed, uh, and all the false accusations against him about sexual harassment. And I mean, you've got uh, protests even in the congressional building. Um, I mean, they, the, the 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 Democrats make a big deal about the January 6th protest, even though the uh, the the Kavanaugh hearings actually probably had more people being unruly in government buildings than uh than even that. But that's really what those protests were largely about, is the fear that uh, someone like Justice Kavanaugh would overturn abortion. Of the the four women who accused him of sexual harassment, the FBI got at least two or three of them to admit after the fact that he never did anything to them. It was mostly uh, a way to slur him so he didn't rule against uh, abortion. Uh, And now here we are uh, later where it does look like Kavanaugh will probably be the swing vote, in whether Roe v. Wade gets overturned or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the three liberals will vote against it. It doesn't matter what Justice Roberts does, but he'll probably vote against it. And so Kavanaugh being probably the most liberal of the five conservative justices. Uh, and so now you've got protest <laughs> in front of his house again, uh, both his house and John Roberts' house and Alito's house. Now, Alito's house is a little bit more like vengeance because he's the one who wrote that leaked draft. But Roberts and Kavanaugh, I mean, that's why they're targeting them instead of having protest in front of <laughs> uh, Amy Coney Barrett's house. We know that she's not changing her decision. But uh, but Roberts and Kavanaugh could be uh, really influential. And so they're uh, in that decision. So they're willing to break that federal law uh, and bully and uh, even intimidate someone to uh, just bend them to their will Uh, instead of actually have them follow what the Constitution says, which is that abortion is an issue that's left up to the individual states.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So much in this story that really uh, expose major uh, and dramatic revolutionary trends in the United States Uh, and just the undermining of the legitimacy of the court in the leak itself. The fact that you had people who uh, put this information out there specifically to try to intimidate the justices into uh, making a decision based on what this very vocal and even violent minority uh, are interested in rather than the, the rule of law. Um, but then the fact that these politicians are going out there and undermining the rule of law in their own way is uh, really goes along with what Gerald Flurry has been pointing to for many years now. Andrew wrote an article about this, Protests After Roe v. Wade Opinion Leak, uh, that we will link to in the show notes. You can go check that out. And we'll also link to that article from Gerald Flurry, Kavanaugh Hearings Reveal America's Lawless Spirit. Thanks for that, Andrew. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, coming up an election in Germany that reveals how politically weak Olaf Scholz has become, an election in the Philippines that will usher in a new Marcos era, signs of how powerful the Iranian supreme leader has grown and the Biden administration continuing to exacerbate rising gas prices. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. We're going to talk about a couple of notable elections from this past week. First, one that took place in Germany that shows just how weak the political position of the chancellor has become. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer.
2: On May 8th, the uh, northern German state of Schleswig holstein uh, had an election, and I think everybody anticipated it. To not go all that well for the Social Democratic Party, the uh, the leading party of the government, they didn't expect it to be quite so catastrophic for them. The Christian Democratic Union, the main rivals, the the right wing rivals to the the governing party, they uh, were they got they won forty three point four percent of the vote, which. In Germany, where you have four or five really uh, significant parties now, to win 43% of the vote is a pretty big achievement. It was a a result that was up over 11% from their last vote. Meanwhile, the Social Democrats, their vote fell by about the same amount, by 12%, putting them only at 16%. The Green Party, a junior coalition member on the national level, ended up overtaking them. Uh, Politico wrote, their headline was, Schultz's social democrats suffer crushing defeat. And I think it's it's both uh, interesting as a uh, symptom and interesting to, to see how this is going to affect the German coalition from here on out. It's one of the things that we've been talking about for years is this desire for a German strong leader. And We spent a lot of time when Angela Merkel was in charge talking about how this desire kind of manifested itself and uh, just all of the effects that this was having in the political system as Germans kind of sought for a strong leader but couldn't find one. Very briefly, it looked like Schultz could be that strong leader right after he came and made his dramatic announcement at the end of February about Germany's militarizing. And he got a big boost in the polls and a whole bunch of different political parties rallied behind him. We talked after that about the way that uh, he kind of appeared indecisive and people didn't seem to like that. Now we know for sure you know, Germans do not see him as the strong leader and you see them just... uh, Kind of desperate for anybody that can project some strength and the leader of the christian uh, democratic union right now friedrich mertz is someone who does present himself as much more of a strong leader who was able even to go and kind of talk to the ukrainian prime uh, the ukrainian president for example and get some things sorted out that schultz was not able to sort out he appears decisive and and strong and you get a massive shift in his favor mm-hmm. uh, you know it 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 shows it shows that there is a it shows the hunger for that strong leadership within Germany.
0: If I understand this right, uh, th- there could be a change in uh, the chancellorship just within the the party. They could replace Schultz with Mertz. Is that right?
2: That's correct. It's 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 a bit of a long shot, but it's being talked about now. Whereas it just uh, wasn't at all that the Green Party and the Free Democratic Party that are currently in coalition with with Schultz's party, they could ditch him for Merz uh, and just you know abandon him, form a new government. You wouldn't need to have fresh elections and you could have a, a quick change in, in German politics. So that is, uh, you know, and p- people have been actively talking about that. Now, again, I don't think necessarily that that's super likely right now, but you can certainly see how dissatisfied these different groups are becoming. And also it shows how this is going to further weaken Schultz. The Green Party did better than him. His coalition party did better than him. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. the Green Party is going to be able to take on more and more power within the coalition because... A, they've got a they've got another guy they could go and deal a deal with, or B, they could if they force fresh elections, they know that they're going to do better. Mm-hmm. So they can start to hold Schultz over a barrel. You know, well, you do this or we'll hold fresh elections. You do this, or we'll hold fresh elections. And if people sense that he's not even in charge of his own government, well, that just makes him look even weaker. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to it's going to compound his problems. But it is a it is a fascinating story to watch because this is one of the keynote prophecies, a strong leader. Uh, within Germany. This is, we have a whole booklet, A Strong German Leader is Imminent, that takes you through all of those different prophecies from Daniel chapter 8, from Daniel chapter 11, that talk about a strong man. What I think is fascinating is they talk about a strong man coming into power by flatteries, and, and you look into the Hebrew, and that's not through kind of legitimate means. It's through something more nefarious, more, more maybe backroom deals, like some kind of a coalition switch. Uh, and so we've had an election fairly recently, some kind of thing where they're disappointed in Schultz could lead to some more kind of backroom dealings. So ap- this appetite for a strong leader within Germany has not gone, gone away and it could lead to some very rapid changes within German politics quite easily.
0: There's a a short article up on the website right now from Josue Michel's More Troubling Signs for Schultz. He points to uh, an article by Gerald Flurry uh, from our uh, recent—this is the November-December 2021 edition, Europe is About to be Hijacked, that points to these prophecies that are also discussed in that booklet, A Strong German Leader is Imminent. But you can go check all of those out. Uh, We will link to them in the show notes for the program. They are there at thetrumpet.com. Thank you very much for that, Richard. We'll keep our eyes on uh, Schultz's political fortunes in the time ahead. Now to an election in the Philippines, which brings to power the son of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr., as well as the daughter of the most recent Philippine dictator. For this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques.
1: Yes, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. won the Philippine presidential elections on Monday, so he will be replacing Rodrigo Duterte next month, and he actually won by a landslide. He took more than 30 million of the 67 million votes, which was more than twice the number of the, the second-place finisher. Um, so that makes this victory noteworthy, but what makes it far more noteworthy is what you just mentioned there. That's Marcos's family connection. He is of course the son of the late Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. So Marcos Sr ruled the Philippines for about 20 years starting back in 1965 and for the first several of those he governed as a democratically elected president just you know operating within the parameters of the Philippine constitution which is modeled after the US constitution but then in 1972 He declared martial law and took all legislative power for himself. And around that time, he started ruling with an iron fist that just brought in a really dark era for the Philippines. And that era lasted for a decade. So that period of history was extremely turbulent for the Philippines. And the Marcos family ended up being forced into exile in the United States in the mid-1980s. That's where Marcos Sr. died in 89. But Marcos Jr., returned to his home country in the 1990s, and now thanks mostly to winning the hearts of the younger Philippine voters, the ones who are too young to really remember mm-hmm. the dark days of his father's rule. Thanks to winning all those votes, Marcos has been elected to become the next president. So we're, we're seeing the most famous and the most polarizing dynasty in modern Philippine politics. It's just about to be back in the Malacañang Young Palace
0: it's It's quite an interesting development. It's a little hard to uh, to know exactly what this means because there are so many things at play. but the, you made the point that it's young people that uh, uh, kind of propelled him into power that don't really know a whole lot about. Him. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when uh, the Filipinos actually ousted his father because of the corruption, uh, not to mention the the authoritarianism that uh, that he put in place um in, in how much is this uh just kind of celebrity worship in a way and not really It's just kind of a shallow uh shallow response in uh to the political scene there
1: yeah i think that's i think that's definitely a big part of this um Marcos Jr. apparently did the bulk of his political campaigning on TikTok, which, you know, isn't known for its profundity. Like these are little snippets, and and I think he capitalized on the family name uh, to to a great degree. And I think that uh, in the Philippines, especially with the younger voters who who are not taught a lot of history, um, like much of the world right now, there's there's just an interest in kind of a, somebody who promises to make the country great again. Maybe they're a bit more nationalistic, a bit more populistic. Perhaps even demagogic than than the uh, other challengers would be. So young people are are prone to get swept up in that kind of fervor, um, especially if it's presented with kind of a suave face and with a with an interesting little TikTok clip here and there. Mm-hmm.
0: So Duterte, we we watched his um, relationship with China pretty closely, and China uh, was definitely making inroads into the Philippines, and it seemed like uh, Duterte was. Uh, He was turning away from the United States and really orienting Philippines to be more of a a Chinese ally. Do you have any sense of whether that might continue under a new Marcos regime?
1: Yes. Uh, Yeah, you're you're exactly right. Duterte did his best to sort of, he he talked about separating the Philippines from the United States and alighting it with, with China and even Russia, sometimes he would mention. Ultimately, he was not able to deliver on much of that. Due mostly to the the top brass in the military, hmm. the you know the longtime generals there understand the value of the U.S. Philippine alliance, and they would they would challenge any kind of real military separation. But with uh, with Marcos Jr. Um, I think we we can expect those efforts at least to continue. It's it's hard to know if he'll have more success up against those generals mm-hmm. than Duterte did, but he has spoken very enthusiastically about soliciting far more investment from China for his very ambitious infrastructure agenda. Um, he has had close personal business ties with China for decades, and so I think we should expect him to bring those into his presidency, just expanding you know all kinds of trade with the Chinese. And then there's an interesting thing with this uh, territorial dispute in, in the West Philippine Sea. Marcos Jr. recently spoke about the international court ruling that was handed down in 2016 that said China's claims to a big slice of Philippine waters was illegal. And so you would think that a Philippine leader would appreciate a ruling like that you know, a ruling that was meant to reassert the Philippines rule over its own territory. Uh, But when he spoke about it, he said that international court ruling was not effective, and that he'll be trying to come up with a new bilateral agreement with China over the territory that China has stolen from them. So it really sounds like capitulation to the Chinese, probably even beyond what we saw under the outgoing president, Rodrigo Duterte. And, uh, yeah the the Supreme Court judge who led the Philippines legal team during that ruling he called Marcos's stance a betrayal and he said he has quote taken the side of China against the Philippines so i think when you look at Marcos's enthusiasm for more investment from China and then when you look at his capitulation to China over that territorial dispute i believe those are strong indications that we should expect the Philippines under his rule to begin moving further away from the U.S. and just more deeply into the Chinese orbit.
0: Uh, Before we conclude, it is worth noting that the vice president uh, actually carries on
1: the Duterte name. Yes, that's right. Uh, the, The President Rodrigo Duterte's daughter, Sarah Duterte, she is the vice president now. And so we had drawn quite a lot of attention to mr rodrigo duterte's policies over the last six years that he's been in power and uh and with her now in the vice presidential office i think we can expect a continuation of of many of his uh policies to continue on there
0: Mm. well thank you very much for that jeremiah now what is happening with the iranian nuclear talks to learn about this we'll go back to brent not
3: Yes, there are reports this week again that the nuclear deal that has been off again, on again. Now it's back on. That's according to the lead negotiator for the Europeans, that there are hopes that they're going to be able to be able to strike a deal. Um, the The Wall Street Journal had a very interesting piece about this this week, and and while I don't necessarily want to focus on that, they're back at the table, um, because really, what we know that the one thing that the the Iranians want now is that they want the Islamic. Revolutionary Guard Corps to be taken off the designated terrorist list and to be deemed as an authentic national army um of the iranians and this is something that i think there was a non-binding um senate vote on this whether whether biden should be allowed to do this this past week and it only won uh 33 or 35 votes and so there's broad bipartisan support for biden not to take the islamic uh, revolutionary guard corps off the terrorist list however that's the that's the basically the thing that the Iranians are not going to sign any deal uh, until they get that. And, and even it was reported and leaked a couple of weeks ago that President Biden basically just asked the Ayatollah, we will let you off the list if you promise to stop targeting Americans on American soil, stop trying to assassinate our Americans, if you just promise to do it. And the Ayatollah, knowing the position of strength that he's in, wouldn't even do that. He wouldn't even just lie and say, okay, fine. No, he, he, he was just going to hold true, um, well, at least not budge at all. But there is this piece um, in the Wall Street Journal that I think is very interesting because it talks about the situation inside Iran right now and how you have a changing dynamic among the leaders, where you have the the Ayatollah, who's the supreme leader, who's the religious head. And then underneath him, you do have the president that's voted into power. Ibrahim Raisi is his name. And I'll just like to quote from this article because it has everything to do with biblical prophecy and what the Bible says Iran um, will be in this, in this end time. It says, Until recently, Mr. Khamenei uh, has had to battle Iranian presidents asserting their own agenda. Rafsanjani... Uh, back in 97, who made uh, Khamenei supreme leader in 1989, always wanted to do everything his way. Then the next president, Khatami, sought liberal reforms. Ahmadinejad was after economic uh, justice, as he still is, uh, and Hassan Rouhani, global engagement and foreign investment. Then it says this, the Wall Street Journal, It's different now. A year into his tenure, Ibrahim Raisi, a political non-entity, limits himself to speeches on good governance. In practice, the office of the supreme leader has fully subsumed the presidency. Which is just a really interesting um, point to, to, to note in terms of biblical prophecy because the Bible talks about uh, if we just go straight to it, that that Iran is going to lead the biblically prophesied king of the south. This is a radical Islamic kingdom that is going to be made up of different nations. Uh, however, it's going to be led by Iran, and it's the radical Islamist fanatical element to this that that provides Iran with as the leadership. But the Bible specifically talks about it being a king. And up until this point, it seems, although we all knew in the background the Ayatollah is the king, he usually pushed his foreign policy or pushed his agenda through the president. Now it's like that's stopped. The The president, Raisi, he can limit himself to these speeches about government and how Iran runs, but in terms of, uh, internally, but in terms of foreign policy, the facade is gone, Iran doesn't care anymore, or the, the, the Ayatollah doesn't care, and he's going to come out and say, I'm dealing directly with the issues. I'm I'm basically the king, uh, the religious king of Iran.
0: Well, if you want to learn more about that prophecy, you can look at our free booklet, The King of the South by our editor in chief, Gerald Flurry. Thank you very much, Brent. One final story in America amid terrible inflation, the Biden administration is still taking steps to ensure that gas prices keep rising. For this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller.
4: Yeah, overnight on Monday, the national average gas price jumped five cents. The, the national average the next day was $4.37. It's, uh, it's slightly cheaper than that here in Oklahoma. But 28 U.S. states, more than half of them, have actually hit their highest average gas price in uh, world history this week so um the price of fuel remains high biden continues to uh refer to this problem as uh, putin's price hike uh yet there's a, a couple big pieces of evidence this week that show that it's uh it's just as much his price hike as well the um Biden administration actually canceled sales for three major offshore oil leases this week, two of them in the Gulf of Mexico, one of them off the the coast of Alaska. But if they would have approved drilling in all three of these leases, it would have opened up uh, one million acres uh, of uh, of undersea of undersea territory uh, atop massive oil reserves for drilling would have been a huge boost to America's domestic oil industry uh, help would have helped bring those gas prices down and and helped America reclaim a pretty big share of the uh, the global energy market since uh, since many nations are uh, interested in reducing their reliance on Russia due to his invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that would have been a huge chance for america to uh, to reclaim that that bid so really the the only reason <laughs> i mean i think they cited some environmental concerns for the canceling but really it does show that the the biden administration it is prioritizing their green agenda above inflation and above the energy crisis and as much as biden talks about putin's <laughs> price hike uh he has a vested interest in seeing the cost of fossil fuels go up uh, as well. Right. Yeah.
0: I, you know, it's it's this is not the first decision that he has made that has pushed gas prices up. And uh, what's remarkable is uh, it any time that an administration official is called out on that point, they insist that uh, they have nothing to do with rising gas prices. They're blaming it all on Putin and external uh, forces. And they just say, you know, if anything, we've we've helped.
4: Right. Which is, made, which is definitely posturing for the the midterm elections, because I think a bunch of Democrats realize they're probably not going to do well in congressional elections this fall because of inflation and because of the energy crisis. But you don't actually have to think back that far. I mean, they've been now they're posturing for midterms and um, and blaming Putin for the the price. But if you even go back to a year ago, to the um the Glasgow climate change conference. I mean, I wrote an article for one of our trumpets on the uh, earlier this year on a weapon to uh, environmentalism as a weapon. I forget exactly the t- what I titled that now, but it was environmentalism as a weapon that really went through the comments that Biden and Obama were making in Glasgow about the need to combat global warming and the need to move away from fossil fuels. And you had clips from Al Gore saying it's time to say goodbye to oil and gas. You had clips from Pope Francis saying it's time to say goodbye to oil and gas, making comments that uh, a few people in the Biden administration, I think Jennifer Granholm, she's uh, over the... Uh, Department of Energy will will talk about the need to transition away from oil and gas but it's they're really talking out of both sides of their mouth where you're you'll see these comments in Glasgow they're like oh well we're we're going to do everything we can to make gas too expensive for people to afford uh and then when people are like well maybe we'll vote for some republicans then they start pointing fingers at uh, pointing fingers at Russia they're like well we have nothing to do with this canceling the keystone pipeline has nothing to do with this canceling offshore oil has nothing to do with this uh uh, roping in uh, drilling permits with so much red tape that you've got uh, American fracking companies going out of business at a time when the nation's desperate for more oil and gas because they can't they can't make it through uh, all the roadblocks Biden's put up to stop American companies from contributing more oil and natural gas to the system um, and then forcing more nations to be reliant on Putin. Uh, you, you can definitely see that this is, uh, <laughs> despite the posturing for the midterms, this is exactly what the administration wants. I don't know if this is the uh,
0: article that you were thinking, but I'm looking at the January 2020 uh, 2022 issue of the Philadelphia Trumpet, and you have an article weaponizing environmentalism uh, that talks about just how much the, the left in the United States has used uh, environmentalism basically to implement communistic Uh, policy in in the United States, that this really has been a pretense for just a radical agenda that is doing it's reshaping a whole lot more than uh, than just trying to implement uh, environmentally friendly policies. It's actually reshaping the American economy.
4: Right. Yeah. January 2020. So I've written that like November, December of 2021 so i wrote that two or three months before putin's invasion of ukraine mm-hmm. and you definitely read the comments that biden and obama are making in that article <laughs> compared to the comments they were making after putin's invasion you can uh definitely see that <laughs> uh, putin's invasion actually helped their green agenda and, and now they're they're just trying to uh, deflect blame for uh, political purposes but yeah that's absolutely that's absolutely right it's about um uh, redistributing wealth not just from the rich to the poor in america but from the rich to the poor globally mm-hmm. and so you, that's what really behind like all this talk about carbon footprints is carbon footprints is a direct proxy for how industrialized your nation is mm-hmm. and so you're talking about reducing your carbon footprint you're like all right you're talking about reducing the industrial capacity of the nations with wealth um uh, and bringing the global standard of living down to something that's more equal mm-hmm. averaging out America with Indonesia and then whatever you get is the is the target
0: well, we will link to that in the uh, show notes. Weaponizing environmentalism. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on today's program by sending an email to letters at trumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of M.A. Stoddart, All that you do, do with your might. Things done by halves are never done right. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm
1: understand your world